Good morning, Sovereign Grace. Hope you all had a good week. I really miss seeing you all and being able to worship with you in the same room and um, sing with you and be around the Word together, but this is the Word the Lord has us for now. And so I'm thankful for the chance to be able to preach to you. And we have a wonderful psalm this morning to meditate on, Psalm 33, Psalm 33. So if you take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 33, we will continue our series through the Psalter. And we have a psalm that really will help us meditate on, meditate on the glories of God this morning. I'm thankful we get this chance to do this together. Psalm 33 is a little bit long, 22 verses. So let's start in verse 1, Psalm 33, 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his works work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits Enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious triune God, we give thanks this morning for your word, for your revelation, for the clear picture of who you are 
We know that we don't deserve to even know you, to be in your presence, Lord, but you have revealed yourself to us. You've condescended to graciously show us who you are. I pray as we meditate on your works and your character this morning that we would be amazed. That your spirit would work in our hearts, would convict us of sin, would give us joy, would help us persevere so that you might be glorified through our lives and from our lips. God, you truly are glorious. Pray that you would be seen as glorious through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered or struggled uh, with how to help people? How to encourage a struggling brother or sister, or how to confront somebody who's in sin? Or even how to show somebody their, their need for a Savior when they're clueless? Have you ever had moments where you, you didn't know what to say, or you didn't know when to say something, or you didn't even know if you should speak at all? Because you were dealing with something so difficult. Maybe you've even come to the end of yourself and your resources and said something like, Lord, please help them. Because I don't know how to. I find myself praying that prayer regularly. Especially when I realize how helpless I am to really fix the problems of this world. And to really truly help people. And in moments like these where I pray that prayer, I remember some wise words that I heard from a teacher and a pastor I had in college, a man named Eric Taunus. Um, he would remind us of this regularly, and this was something that was passed on to him by an, a faithful pastor, and he often would pass this on to us. He would say things like, if you really want to help people, if you want to honor the Lord in your ministry, don't point them to you. Don't point them to another pastor. Don't point them just to another ministry. Especially don't point them to look inward, to try to figure out how to fix things from within. Point them outward to God. And he would always say this, help them see that God is good and that God is great, especially in Jesus. There's just so much truth to that statement. I find it to be more profound and true every single day that I think about it. But what do we mean by that? I mean, it sounds profound, but we use the words good and great all the time to describe God and to describe pizza. So what do we mean when we say God is good? Well, we don't mean that he's just not bad, right? We mean that everything that God is and everything that God does is worthy of approval. When we see God's character and we see his work, we should stand up and give him a standing ovation. Because it's, it's the best it can possibly be. You would never want to change a thing. And when we talk about God's goodness, we're, we're talking about his care of us. The way he provides for us. His closeness to us. His imminence. His uh, meeting our needs. And this is what we get in scripture when we hear about the shepherd and our father. Or when we call God our friend. Those are all about God's goodness. And on the other hand, when we talk about God's greatness, we're talking about His bigness, His majesty, His glory, His transcendence, His holiness. These are the kind of attributes that make us tremble. We realize that we're sinners in front of a great and glorious God. Now the best news in the world is that God is both good and great. 
He's not just one or the other. If God was just good, that would be terribly disappointing. Right? If he were around and nice, he would just be like a buddy or a friend. He would offer good advice, but he would be helpless to do anything. Kind of like my little son, Finn, which many of you guys know. We love Finn, and he has an eager heart to help, but he's still a little guy. So oftentimes he'll ask if he can help, and I say, well, bud, I, I like where your heart is, but no, I'm sorry. Not yet. You can't help with this. You see, if God is just good, he's just a God of good intentions and nothing more. But on the other hand, if God was just great, that would be terrifying. Or maybe even just disappointing again, because he might be great and glorious, but he's just not around. Like the God of deism, he created the world, but he's, he's absent now. He's left it to be on its own. And now he's like an absentee father. Or maybe like the God of Islam, where God is great, but he's opposed to us. We don't experience his goodness because we're sinners. And all we receive is the wrath of God. But the Bible clearly reveals a God who is both good and great. He's the lion and the lamb. The king and the shepherd. He cares for us and he is able to do something about it. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. The goodness and greatness of God in Christ. We need to remember that each and every day. And it's the only thing that we have to offer a lost and dying world. But it's the only thing that will help. And Psalm 33 will help us meditate on those truths this morning. Actually, Psalm 33 will put God's goodness and God's greatness on display and call us to respond. It will call us to respond with joyful praise and with trust in our good and great God. That's what I hope we leave with this morning, is that we can leave rejoicing, praising our Lord, trusting Him, resting in Him, because God is good and God is great. Well, as we go through this passage, you'll see that it clearly divides up into three parts. The first three verses are a call to praise, and then the the big part of the passage is in verses 4 to 19, and those are the reasons for praise. And then last, the last few verses, 20 to 22, are the response of praise. So let's start with this call to praise in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Well, the psalmist is just on a roll here. He's just giving command after command. In these first three verses, just six lines, we have five different commands. All saying almost the same thing. Shout to the Lord, give thanks, make melody to our God. Sing to him a new song, a song of redemption. A song that celebrates his new mercies every single morning. And play skillfully. And the verses tell us to use our voices, to use musical instruments to do this, to use every skill that God has given us. And the point here is the psalmist is trying to say, praise God with your whole being. Praise God with everything you have. And you might notice in verse 1, we're to do this joyfully, aren't we? Verse 3 even says loudly or, or passionately. That's what this praise should look like. 
Not reluctantly or, or casually like we sometimes can come into church. Or under compulsion because other people are praising God around us. We don't just praise God when we feel like it. Or once we've been blessed by God. No, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your struggles and your suffering, even regardless of how you feel, the psalmist is calling us to joyfully praise the Lord with all of our being. Well, who exactly is the psalmist calling to do this? I gave it away a little bit, but who is the psalmist talking about here? Well, we see that in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So this is a command for the righteous, the upright. Well, who are they? Is this some group of people out there that are sinless, that are perfect, that are righteous? No, they don't exist this side of the fall. So the righteous here and and throughout the Psalter, the righteous are the same idea. The righteous are those that are right with God. Those that have been justified by faith, declared righteous by the righteous one. Those that are in Christ, that the shed blood of Jesus covers over their sin and now they're reconciled to God. They're at peace with God. Well, where do we see that here? We actually see it in kind of a weird place. In fact, look at the very top of Psalm 33. Do you notice something missing? There's no superscript, is there? I know we always see, you know, a Psalm of David to to the choir master or something like that. But there's no superscript here. We probably just flew right past that and not even noticed. But this is kind of rare in the Psalms. Because usually when this happens, it means that this Psalm is actually kind of like a part of the previous Psalm. Almost like a different verse in the same song. And it's usually true, too, that they share common themes. I mean, look at Psalm 32, verse 11. Look at where the previous psalm uh, leaves off. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly like Psalm 33, isn't it? They're calling us to sing. They're calling us righteous and upright. Well, who are these righteous people? Well, look at Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 32, 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you see, the righteous are also the blessed ones. And why are they blessed? Because they've been forgiven. Because God doesn't hold their iniquity against them. Because God has made them righteous through Christ, through faith. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 33, verse 1, and I love the statement at the end of verse 1, praise befits the upright. It fits. It's it's right. It's appropriate. It's the right thing for the people of God to do. It's not just a good idea to praise or a good habit to get into, like exercise or eating healthy. No. Praise for God's people is, is natural now because the Spirit dwells in us. It's instinctive, almost like a, a reflex. Look, praiseless Christian should be an oxymoron for us, Right? Like, like jumbo shrimp or slow racehorse. Right? It just doesn't, it doesn't work. They don't go together. To be a Christian means to praise the Lord. 
It fits. It's right. John Calvin says this beautifully. He says, There is no better way for the people of God to be employed. Indeed, they have so benefited from God's boundless goodness that it would be disgraceful for them to be silent. It would be ridiculous for them not to praise God because all that God has done for them. So passionate, rejoicing and praising God is right for the people of God. But why? That is the big question in this psalm. Why is this kind of praise, this elaborate praise, right for the people of God? Why should this God receive this kind of praise? What are the reasons for that? Well, we get the reasons for this praise from verse 4 to 19. And there are many reasons, many more than this psalm can give us. But this psalm lays out four reasons that we'll cover briefly. Four reasons for praising God like this. We praise God because of God's character. Praise Him for His power, for His control, and for His care. Praise God for His character, power, control, and care. And this is the section that puts God's goodness and greatness on display like almost no other part of Scripture. It's just truly tremendous. So let's look at verse 4 as we look at God's character as the first reason to praise Him. And notice it starts with four, right? Because this is the reason for all that noise, all that excitement, all that passion, all that praise. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. What a beautiful description of God's character. Did you notice the greatness? Even in the first verse, verse 4, God is upright. right? His people are upright because God has made them upright, but that's His characteristic. God is true, dependable, faithful. He is without deceit. And it even says in verse 5, He loves righteousness. Oh, I'm so glad they added the love there. Because we can get this idea that God is just this kind of vending machine of righteousness. He just hands it out like a judge handing out sentences. It's not how God is at all. He's not conforming to a standard that he set up and he's just like, well, I guess I have to be righteous now. No, that's not God at all. He loves righteousness. He delights in righteousness and in justice, which really is the application of his righteousness, isn't it? It's to do righteous things, to make things right. Oh, this is truly a great God, isn't it? And this sets God apart from us in so many ways. I mean, we are frail, fallen, finite creatures. We could even have the best intentions and we can still disappoint people. We still come up short, not only to God's standards, but even to our own. But God never fails. He never lets one evil deed go unpunished. Because he's righteous. And he loves righteous Righteousness and justice. In light of all this greatness, we should expect to hear that if God is really this great, why should he have anything to do with sinners like us? But that's not what we see in this passage. We actually see the goodness of God come through as well. We see that, first of all, in God's name. You notice the all caps there, right? This is the Lord Yahweh. This is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. 
that we've been studying really throughout all of Scripture, but especially in Hebrews, we see God's faithfulness through the whole Old Testament. This God is faithful to fallen people. He's chosen a people, called them out, and He loves them faithfully. And verse 5 says, The earth is full of what? The wrath and judgment of God? No. The earth is full of the steadfast love of God. And that's this beautiful picture of God's love, this Hebrew word hesed, which is sometimes translated unfailing love or covenantal love. And that's really what it is. This is the picture we see in the Old Testament of this this husband who refuses to abandon his unfaithful bride. This God who refuses to wipe his hands of his sinful people, but instead seeks them out, covenants with them, is gracious to them. Showing them steadfast love. And you'll notice this steadfast love is not just, you know, here or there. It it consumes the earth. It's all over the earth. It's not running out anytime soon. The evidence of it are everywhere. Isn't our God glorious? He is great and he is good. Especially when you look at how he cares for his covenant people. And that's enough by itself to meditate on for the rest of our lives. But the psalmist continues with talking about God's power in verse 6. God's power. Verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. As you can probably tell, this Section. These two verses are clearly portraying the greatness of God, the power of God, especially in creation. You might have noticed too, this is just like Genesis 1 and John 1, these, those creation accounts. We even see the Trinitarian God at work. Did you notice that? We have the Lord, which is the Father, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. We have the Word who became flesh, that's Jesus, in John 1. And then we have the breath of God, or that word can also be translated spirit. So we have this Trinitarian God at work doing what? Creating the world through speech. I don't know if you get a hold of that for a second. I think we don't think about that nearly as much as we we should. God made the world simply by speaking. And God's power and God's effectiveness is shown in the power of his decrees. In his speech. That's how we know how how great God is. I mean, think about how this compares to us. I barely get anything done with my words. Right? I mean, I could be in the kitchen, dinner ready, and and tell the kids who've been telling me they were starving all day long, dinner's ready, and I hear, I'm coming, Dad. And five minutes goes by, and ten minutes go by, and no one's there. And I have to finally go and get them. Right? My words do very little to accomplish what I want sometimes. And I'm, I'm just a normal man in this world. But even people that have power in our world. I mean, think of our governor, our president. They're making decrees right and left these days. Is everybody following those? Do they have the ability to have instant obedience for the world to move with their words? Not even close. But that's not the way it is with God. It takes God no energy, no effort to speak. But the world obeys. He commands, and it happens. Even the mighty seas, verse 7, right? The seas are stored up. 
on the seas are this picture of fear and judgment throughout Scripture. Think of the flood in Noah's day that wiped out so many people, or the Red Sea that wiped out Pharaoh's army. Nobody, no man can really tame the seas and and do anything about them because they're so overwhelmingly powerful. No one but God. And God does it just by speaking. Oh, this is tremendous, unthinkable, glorious power and greatness. That's why the psalmist calls us to do this in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. That is the only response when we behold the power and greatness of God. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him because only God is great and only God is awesome, really awesome, not the way we use awesome, right? Worthy of awe, worthy of worship because God is good and God is great. And you might be thinking, well, that seems like all greatness. Where's the goodness? Right? God's supposed to be good and great. Well, look at verse 9. For he spoke. Now, who's the he there? This is Yahweh. Right? We saw that in the last verse, the verses before. That word shows up 13 times in this whole passage, showing us the goodness of God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's the one speaking this. He's the one creating. That's goodness right there. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. It was established. You see, God, His goodness is displayed in this world because He made a world that is ordered, that stands firm, where evil is restrained. Even the chaos of of the seas, the most powerful thing in this world. And He created a world full of, of his steadfast love and glory. You see, the greatness of God spoke the world into existence. That was a display of his greatness so that it could be a theater to display his goodness. Now, I don't want us to separate these things. These are crucial to be together. But it's like Jonathan Edwards says, God made this world to display his glory and his glory is seen in his goodness and his greatness. To accomplish creation... And then to continue to sustain creation. And that's what we see next. Right? We've seen two reasons to praise God. God's character. God's power. And now we see God's control. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. And as I was saying, you can see the switch here in subject. We were talking about God's work in creation. Now we're talking about providence. We're still talking about God's word, right? God's word spoke the world into existence, but now we're talking about God's word in the sense of his counsel, his will, his plan, his control to sustain the world that he made, which shows his goodness because he's involved. He's not a deistic God, right? And how involved is he? Well, God's will, God's plan, God's control overrules all things, all nations and people so that their plans come to nothing, so that they're frustrated. But God's plans overrule all of them. 
It will never be slowed down. You know, a month or two ago, it might have been tempting not to believe that or to forget that, that God is really the one in control. But all we have to do now is open our eyes and look around at what this pandemic has done to the world. You think of all the people of power, whether they be um, leaders or authorities or presidents or, or wealthy people or people that are famous and have lots of influence. All their boasts about how they're going to change the world and, and all their big plans. What happened because of a little bitty virus? Where are they now? All their plans are nothing. Right? They're frustrated. I mean, they can't even make new plans because they have no idea what's coming next. Shows how ridiculous and arrogant their plans really were. But this pandemic was not a surprise to God. It didn't change his plan one bit. It didn't throw him off course for one second. Because God was in control the whole time. He's already been in control. He will always be in control. And this was even part of his sovereign, providential, glorious, and great plan. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Think of how easily God just steers the nations, just like a stream of water. I mean, Isaiah talks about God whistling and like a well-trained dog. The nations do exactly what he says. God's greatness and his control is just unimaginable. His sovereignty and his greatness is seen in how he rules and reigns over everything and everyone. You know, I wonder what we would do with that kind of control. I'm afraid to think of it, honestly. What I would do, what you would do, if we had that much power. Look what God does. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. I was not expecting that. After hearing of the, the greatness of God's power and God's control and his providential control of every nation, I was expecting to hear something like Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what does God do? He who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs at their arrogant plans. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It seems like the proper response of a great God, right? In the face of sinful plans of human beings and nations. But that's not what we see here. Instead of judgment, we see blessing. We see the God who frustrates the plans of nations who guides human history. He does all of that to do what? To show his steadfast, covenant-keeping love to one nation, to a people group, to people he calls out of fallen humanity, a nation he chooses to bless, to make his own possession, his own heritage, 
to care for. That's not the United States, in case you're wondering. It's not even physical Israel. That's the people of God throughout all of eternity. This is the church who've been called from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. God has set His steadfast love on them from the beginning of time. God uses His power and His control to steer history for their good and for His glory. All of His attributes, His holiness, His greatness, His majesty, and His grace and His love and all of His goodness are all for His people because of the work of Jesus. That is just mind-boggling. Incredible that a great God would be that good. And we should praise Him for it. We should praise God because of His character, His power, His control. And the last one in this section, God's care. God's care in verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. We have a big shift here now from from the Word of God now to the the sight or the eye of God, as it will be called later. And notice where God is looking from, right? Notice His exalted, His great place. He looks down from heaven, verse 13. That language is borrowed right out of Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that situation? Where the, the people of this world gather together to show their greatness and build this giant tower. But what does God do? He has to come down and look at it because it's so measly in comparison to him. It's the same idea as God looking down from heaven in this posture of judgment. He's enthroned, right? Because he's the one that fashioned the hearts of men. Think of that. He made us in his own image. He knows exactly what he wanted it to be. He knows exactly how far we've fallen. And what does God see as he looks down from his throne? Verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. What does God see from this exalted place? He sees proud human plans. Just like at the Tower of Babel. He sees his people whom he created in his image, trusting in kings and rulers and warriors and armies, the weapons of war like horses and chariots. And even today, he sees the children he created trusting in worldly wisdom, in education. Oh, if we just had more education and more time, we could solve anything, right? He sees them trust in political parties and leaders and and presidents and new administrations. He sees them trust in new technology and, and even the hope of a vaccine as if that will solve all of our problems. He even sees us trust in our own righteousness, our own good works, hoping that that will be the source of our salvation. But none of it, none of it will work in the face of of a great and glorious God. 
So what are we supposed to do? Verse 18. Behold. I love that they use that word. It's like God looked down from heaven. God sees, now you see. That's what that means. Behold, the eye of the Lord. Behold, see what God sees. The eye of the Lord is where? On those who fear Him. On those who hope in His steadfast love. The eye that should look down on the world in judgment looks down on the world, sees those who fear Him, and delights in giving mercy, in showing His steadfast love. It's this picture that the God, the great and glorious God who made the world, sustains the world, who, who has His plan last throughout all of eternity, is our only refuge from the wrath and the greatness of God. That's the picture we get here. This incredible grace, this incredible goodness is given to those who trust in him, who find him at his refuge, as their refuge. I hope you're getting the tension here that God's goodness and God's grace almost seem opposed to each other. How can God be that good to sinful, broken people? If he truly is that great, there's no way he can be that good, right? We can be that good only because he sent his son. Oh, he is that good because he is. And it's evidenced as he sends his son, Jesus, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the eternal Davidic king, the final prophet, priest, and king to display God's goodness and God's greatness in this world by living the life that we fail to live, by obeying God's law, by walking righteously in the place of the unrighteousness, all the way to the cross, dying on the cross, bearing the wrath for our sin so that we can be given the righteousness of God by faith, by trusting in Him, by finding Him as our refuge. And He rose from the dead conquering sin and death so that we might become righteous, that we might become upright and we might be able to experience the goodness of God because the greatness of God in His wrath was poured out on Jesus. We get to taste His goodness. Because Jesus was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how God can be good and great to his covenant people. The Old Testament saints look forward to that day, look forward to the cross of Christ as we look back on that display of goodness and greatness for our only hope in salvation. So that we might experience this. Look at verse 19. That he, Yahweh, may deliver their soul from death. That he might save us from Satan, sin, and death. From eternity and hell. That's the display of God's goodness. And keep us alive in famine. Oh, that's this picture of God's provision. God not only rescues us from death, He not only rescues us from our sin, He provides for us. He continues to be good for us, caring for us, sustaining us, so that we make it home one day, safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. That's how good our God is. And He wouldn't be that good if He wasn't able to do anything about it, if He wasn't truly great. 
Our God is abundantly good and abundantly great. And we see it so clearly in the face of Jesus and in his work, which was previewed throughout all of history and which we look back on for our only hope. So how in the world do we respond to this? What do we do? Well, verse 20 through 22 tells us what we do in response to the glory of God, the goodness of God, and the greatness of God, especially in Jesus. 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I don't know about you, but these verses feel very out of place to me. The more I studied this week, the more they felt out of place. After this incredible display of the goodness and greatness of God, I was expecting something like the call to worship in the first three verses, except bigger and louder and more passionate than ever. I was ready to storm the gates of hell after this picture of God. But what are we called to do? To wait. To trust. To hope in Him. Really. It seems so passive in light of all we just heard. So ordinary. So daily. To wait on God. To be patient with Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not good at waiting. I wish I was. I'm working on it. That's why I like to go fishing. Because it helps me to be patient. But I'm not. I'm not good at waiting. I lose my patience in traffic, at at the store. I lose my patience, especially when technology doesn't work the way that we want it to. Um, I even lose my patience with the people that I love the most. Like my family. But none of that even compares to how little trust and patience I have with God. You know, when something unexpected comes up, when some difficulty comes into my life, whatever it might be, health, financial, whatever it might be, I wish that I could say my first reaction was always to trust, to hope, to rest in Him. But it's not. Often I panic. I freak out. I don't think, well, wait a minute. God's in control. He's good and great after all. He can handle this. Let's wait on Him. No, I panic and try to fix it myself. And I make more of a mess out of whatever situation I have. And then the insanity is, I get bitter towards God. For not doing what I think should be done. For not showing up and fixing my problems the way I think it should go. For not following my plan. It's just insane. But I do this. I, I, I hope you can relate to this. I wish right now I could see if anybody's nodding their head. Because I'm guessing that some of you are. But why do we do this? Why do we doubt? Why do we have so much trouble waiting and hoping and trusting in the Lord? Well, I think it's because we forget that God is good and that God is great. When the world starts spinning out of control, we can lose sight of God's goodness. We can start to believe the same lies we heard in the garden. That God doesn't have our best interests in mind. He's not going to provide for me the way that I think I should get something or he's not going to give me what I think I need so I have to go out and get it for myself. Or maybe God is good but he's just not near me anymore. 
Maybe he has some kind of compassion fatigue. After all, I'm a pretty needy person. I confess my sin a lot. The same sin. Maybe God's just tired of it. He has better things to do. Right? His, his goodness is not accessible to me anymore. We can start to believe these lies, can't we? Or maybe we can swing to the other end of the pendulum swing and think that, you know what? God is really not that great. I doubt many of us would say that God's not great or that God's weak or inferior or unworthy or unable to handle things. But the amazing thing is, is once we get a taste of the, the, good, the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, and how little control that we actually have, what's our reaction? It's the panic, isn't it? Oh no, what do I do? If God's in control and I'm not in control, that really bothers me. Which is me saying, if God would let me be in control, then everything would be fine. If he would give me the reins, then I can rest secure. It's insane to think that way, but we do, don't we? Think about what we're saying. We're saying, I don't think God is great enough to handle this, but I think I am. That's the way we doubt God's greatness. Well, how do we battle these temptations? Well, we rest, we trust, we hope, as these last verses say. But then God also shows us the reasons, even in these last verses. Did you catch that? Look at verse 20 again. Our soul waits for the Lord. Why? Because He is our help. He's good. And our shield. He's great. For our heart is glad in Him. Why? Because we trust in His holy name. His great name. Let your steadfast love, your goodness, O Lord, O Yahweh, the good and great one, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Our trust, our rest, our waiting for the Lord are all grounded in his goodness and his greatness. And when we cease to praise, when we cease to trust, when we cease to hope in him, we're forgetting his goodness. And his greatness. We're forgetting his character, his power, his control, and his care. But the only hope for us, the only hope for anybody in this world, is the gospel. It's that God is good and that God is great, especially in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, you are truly good and great. We see that in just these 22 verses, but we can see that just by opening our eyes. Especially as your spirit works within us, we see your goodness and greatness displayed all over the world. And we see it so clearly in Jesus. The display of your steadfast love and faithfulness to your covenant people. God, give us joy so that we might praise you. Give us perseverance so that we might trust you. Give us boldness so we might preach of your goodness and greatness to this lost and dying world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.